My name is Kyle. Welcome to Uplift, to the conversation, and to Anchor Point. We're in a series here uh, called Counselor, Comforter, Keeper. It's a teaching series on the Holy Spirit with the assumption that often believers have some uncertainties about the Holy Spirit as what Paul witnessed in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, where he found some disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, who had this to say when Paul asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit when they were baptized. It's Acts chapter 19, verse 2. Look at this. They responded, no, we've not even heard. We've not even heard there's a Holy Spirit. I don't want this to be you. I don't want you to be misinformed. I don't even want you to be underinformed about the Holy Spirit. So that's why I think this uh, series could have some uh, some significant value for you. The Bible has two primary words for the Holy Spirit, by the way. And if we translated those two biblical words literally, literally, the translation would be less spirit and more breath or storm. God's presence, his breath, it surrounds us. It gives us life. It gives us new life. It gives us energy to worship and to praise and to serve and to act. So you might hear me refer to the Spirit of God as the breath of God, and that's why. Let's begin. I told you to open up to Acts. We're actually going to begin somewhere else in Hebrews chapter 1. We've got it on the screen for you. It's the first two verses, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, we don't know who wrote this letter, this New Testament book we call Hebrews. If you read it, though, we can imagine a believer, an author with a robust faith with the ability to recall and use Old Testament themes easily. We know the author was probably highly intelligent because of the command of the original language, the Greek language here, is said by some scholars and commentators to be the best in all of the New Testament. The writer of this book was uh, either male or female. There are theories that it could be either. It was pretty smart, sharp person. Even so, can you imagine, can you imagine just for a minute what it took to write this first line in this book, this line right here, but in these last days? Now, I want you to think about that. Think about the writer of this book who sits down at a desk, ponders and wonders how to start this letter. And this writer decided that as they understood the growing movement of Jesus' followers in the Roman world, in small towns and in large cities, that they could with all authority and immediate accountability call the era in which they lived the last days. That's an amazing statement. It's not a statement we use. When I text people, I don't start with that phrase. I don't start emails with that phrase. I don't book hotels and then send confirmation emails with that phrase. We don't begin our church services by saying, in these last days. I would say that beginning a letter like this in any era of time takes quite a bit of fortitude. This prologue here in Hebrews, it's about God's speaking. 
But inserting this small bit of information about time, it's pretty critical because prior to Jesus, God spoke quite a bit through quite a few people. But with Jesus, God's word is final. It's his last word to humans, and it brought the last days. It's the last era of time. It's the last era of God's revelation. Because that's what that phrase means, that Jesus has ushered in the final epoch of human history, of time itself. Now, alone, by itself, if this was the only place in the New Testament this phrase was written, that could be a poetic phrase, a nice introduction, a nice way to open a letter, but it's actually found somewhere else. And it's found with a little bit of pizzazz. I'll show you this in a minute. It's found in Acts chapter 2. This passage is printed on your order of worship. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be there a little while. This phrase is found in Acts chapter 2, and it's found from the mouth of Peter in the first ever sermon given after Jesus' ascension. It's Peter's way of defending what had just happened, right? If you remember the story in Acts, the first couple of chapters, the apostles through a miraculous event, are speaking the gospel. And people from multiple places hear the gospel in their own language. There were a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions about exactly what's going on. So Peter defended this miraculous moment with this phrase and what continues. Let's read this together. It's Acts chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 14. But Peter... Standing with the eleven. I love that phrase. I love that phrase. Peter, who was shamed because of his denial, who was humble, stands here, stands with the eleven. He lifted up his voice and he addressed them, this crowd, this crowd of questioners, right? Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people, they're not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, which is nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he's referencing an Old Testament prophet, verse 17. And here's our phrase. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and, sp and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's his defense. In other words, the miraculous event of hearing various languages is a sign that the last days had arrived. Look again, verse 17, look at the very first phrase, and in the last days it shall be, and then everything else that, that Peter mentions. So Peter was the first person to corner the market on defining the time 
in which he lived and the moment in which he spoke before the book of Hebrews was ever written. And Peter, speaking to a Jewish crowd in Jerusalem, now listen to this, a crowd familiar with the Old Testament, familiar with the prophets, this crowd knew that Peter quoted Joel, but they also knew that Peter didn't quite quote Joel word for word. Because in Joel, this passage begins with these words, and afterward. Instead, Peter said, in these last days. There's your pizzazz. They knew that Peter didn't get it right. Now listen, it doesn't mean that Peter misquoted Joel. I don't want you to think that. What it really means is that Peter interpreted Joel's prophecy through the lens of his own lived experiences in this moment. How, how else? How else could he explain what had just happened to him and to the other apostles? How else? Other than the Spirit of God had returned, Peter knew that the afterward of which Joel spoke was the day in which he lived, Peter lived. And from his vantage point, God's presence had returned. The last days had arrived. And Peter, with the words of the prophet Joel, prophesied anew what would occur in the last days with the Spirit of God breathing life into Jesus' followers. And that because of the Spirit of God, life in the last days is filled with the supernatural. It's filled with the supernatural. Luke, the writer of this book of Acts of the Apostles, knew this after the fact. And he believed that every supernatural event that occurred was the very fulfillment of Peter's words. If the Spirit of God, if his breath had been poured out, then, of course, supernatural things were bound to occur. What I'm going to do over the next few minutes, I'm going to break them down for you. You just see some blank lines on your order of worship. You can fill them in. As we go, let's break them down. The first thing that Peter mentions is prophecy. That prophecy would come with the Spirit of God in the last days. Let's read it. Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. And they shall prophesy. Now, before we kind of break this down, i gotta, I got to tell you that throughout Luke's books, he wrote two books, 27% of the New Testament, by the way, was written by one person, written by Luke. The Gospel That Bears His Name and Acts of the Apostles. In those two books, he used one specific phrase 27 times. And that phrase, or variations of it, is the phrase, full of the Spirit, or filled with the Spirit. Luke used that phrase for what happened when people spoke from the Lord or, or they prophesied. It's not so much that they foretold the future as they spoke truth even when it was difficult. In Luke's mind, that's how he determined what prophecy was. So I'm going to show you a slide with some passages. You can write them down. We're going to run through them quickly. Or you can just snap a picture of them and look at them later. Either way, I want to show you about three or four instances where this happened. In Acts chapter 4, verse 8, Peter was filled with the Spirit, 
and he spoke to the leaders of Jerusalem. A little later in chapter 4, the core group of believers prayed, and Luke wrote that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and it enabled them to speak, here's the prophecy, the word of God with boldness, to speak it. In Acts chapter 9, verse 17, Ananias was appointed by God to find Saul and commission him to be, and it says this right there, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 21, verse 9, the gift of prophecy. In these last days, it wasn't just limited to men. The four daughters of the disciple Philip prophesied. In other words, God speaks to people because of his breath, his spirit, to all people and not just to a a specified group, a specific group. God's voice, it's available, it's audible. People can breathe in the breath of God and speak truth when they have every reason to be afraid of its consequences. That's the first thing that Peter spoke of. Here's the second, visions and dreams. Visions and dreams. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Your young men, Peter said, through Joel shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Break them down. Acts chapter 10, verse 3, Peter saw a vision of an angel. A little later in chapter 10, Cornelius saw a vision of an angel. In Acts chapter 27, Paul saw a vision of an angel. In Acts chapter 7, verse 55, Stephen, as he died, as he was martyred, saw a vision of Jesus. In chapter 18, verse 9, Paul saw and heard Jesus. And in Acts chapter 16, Paul saw a man from another region of the empire begging Paul to come see him. Visions are possible in the last days. Here's a third one. So are wonders and signs. These are, these are rather well known. Acts chapter 3 verse 7, Peter healed a paralytic giving the paralytic the ability to walk. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 16, the rulers of the city called the action that Peter did, they called it a sign. Stephen, just mentioned him, in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, performed wonders and signs, word for word. Philip, in chapter 8, verse 6, performed signs. And Paul and Barnabas, while planting churches in Acts chapter 14 and 15, performed signs and wonders. Those are all there. You see what Luke's doing. He used this speech by Peter as an outline of his book. Also part of the last days are this, wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth. This is a little tricky, but I think it's pretty cool. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 19. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire In vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Now, if you're reading this for the first time, you're probably going to stop and say, what in the world is this? This seemingly subjective description in the middle of very objective events. Let me tell you what most scholars think here. Most scholars believe that this was used as a reference to what happened earlier in Acts chapter 2, in the event that started it all. Let's read this, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You know this, when the day of Pentecost arrived, all the believers were all together in one place, and suddenly, now look at these phrases, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it 
filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. In other words, Peter and Luke meant, they didn't really mean that these wonders in the heaven and signs on the earth and blood and fire and vapor and smoke were going to be literal occurrences. They viewed these items from Joel as inexplicable things, things you can't describe, you can't explain. The key is how Luke referenced this event, this, this, uh, this sound and this light. He referenced them as comparisons. Look at this. The sound was like a mighty wind, and the lights were as of fire, and these things came from heaven. Not necessarily a place of God's dwellings, but from the sky, but from nature, from outside the room. In other words, where they were sitting, lights went were everywhere. They couldn't really explain what happened, but what they knew is that inexplicable things happen in the last days. And finally, finally in this outline, salvation is available to those who call on the name of the Lord. In fact, throughout Acts, the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, that phrase becomes the standard by which all of life is experienced. There are three things here that Luke specifically mentions. Look at them. Preaching in the name of Jesus. Baptizing in the name of Jesus. And even suffering. Suffering is done in the name of Jesus. The whole of experience of following Jesus is done in his name under the umbrella of his authority. And I want to be honest with you right here. I could stop right here. I could stop. There's quite a bit to digest in the process here. I'm sure you got some questions. It's an impressive list, and Luke wrote an impressive book. But I'm not stopping here. You're not getting out early. And I'm going to tell you why. Because by nature, I'm a, I'm a skeptic. I'm, I'm a little cynical. And probably like you, I have really just one question when I read things like this. Are these things still possible today? Are we still living in the last days? And and if we are, and God's breath, his spirit is still with his creation, do these supernatural events still happen? I mean, if you're breathing, you have that. So in answering this question, I think we have three options. I'm going to give them to you. Here's option number one. A lot of people believe that of the gifts mentioned in Acts chapter 2, the only one to remain today is salvation. I've heard that. If that's true, then by default, we're using logic here, Peter was wrong. He should have never altered Joel chapter 2. The last days had not arrived, and the disciples were mistaken. That's option number one. Here's option number two. If Peter was right, and the Spirit was poured out, and the last days had arrived, and all of these things happened in Acts, but don't happen anymore, then the last days must have ended. But if that's true, then what do you do with salvation? Don't all of these 
spirit-ushered gifts of prophecy and visions and signs and all this salvation, don't they all come as a package when the Spirit is poured out? I mean, i got to tell you, Acts makes that assumption. And especially as you finish the book, it never gives you the impression that any of this stuff is over. That's option number two. Here's option number three. For those who accept that Peter was right, and that the Spirit has been poured out, and that Peter and us, we live in the last days, and there's only one choice. And the choice is this, that these gifts still occur. I'm going to tell you, that's what I think. And I don't think that's hard to accept. And I'm going to tell you why. Because I've experienced these things. And let me tell you something else. The person with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. Ever. Ever. I'm an option number three guy. Let me give you some hope, though. Wherever you are on this spectrum, these things listed here are a taste, a little tiny baby taste of life in glory. A taste that there's more coming Peter tells us this. Oh, it's so cool, y'all. And to discover that this is just a taste, we're going to have to go old school. You remember the King James Version? Remember that? We're going to have to read from the... Is that okay if we read from the King James Version? Some people still pray in the King James Version. I think we're familiar with this. I want us to read from the King James Version of this passage. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 17 from the KJV. And it shall come to pass... In the last days, saith, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Now, there's a significant difference here in the King James Version than it is in other versions because the King James Version retains a critical word that a lot of our other English translations just overlook. It's a preposition. It's the word of, O-F. That word is actually in the Greek of this text. Some English translators, for whatever reason, decide to not translate it. But I think the KJV gets it right. In other words, the Lord pours out of his spirit. It's a big difference. Either he pours out his spirit, as some translations, but the KJV says correctly, he pours out of his his spirit. See, see, without that word, other English translations, whether they mean to or not, give the impression that all of God's spirit is released on the world. And that every supernatural event is the apex of our life with God. But that's not true. God only gives some of his spirit. He only pours out of his spirit just a little bit. He only gives us some of his breath. And with just a portion of God's Spirit, we only see these things rarely. We don't see them fully. You may not see them at all, but that doesn't mean they don't happen. But I want you to imagine with me just for a minute the return of Jesus when supernatural occurrences are the norm, not the exception. Come, Lord Jesus. Life in these last days prepares us for life beyond the last days. 
And oh, what a day that's going to be. I can't wait.